Good day. This is Michael Muth of Going Global International Interviews. Today we are speaking with George Deeb, the president and CEO of iExplore. Uh, you can learn more about them at iExplore.com. Uh, we're talking with George today about international adventure travel. Uh, you can find an edited transcript to this interview at uh, intlalliances.com or midwestbusiness.com. Okay, so here I am with George Deeb, and George, we're hoping you would hold on to that while we go through the questions and we can minimize the Perfect. Uh, what are the demographic characteristics of your customers internationally? In other words, from which continents, what different languages do they speak and talk? Um, I'm going to step back and say that the fact that we're an internet-driven business mm -hmm. uh, dictates where we get most of our audience from. Now, mm -hmm. um, most of our audience are American. Right? They live in the United States, they're traveling overseas. Uh, I'd say of our website percentage mix, about 70% is American traffic. Okay? The much higher percentage of our buying customers are Americans, but in terms of people coming to the website, 70% are Americans. The rest is splintered from every country of the world. Uh, the bigger countries would be the UK, um, Australia, Canada, this other English-speaking uh, countries. In other words, there aren't a lot of other foreign language speakers who are coming to the uh, site as well. They may, they may be foreign language speakers, but they're engaging with us in English. Right? So that's how we know and then can engage with them. Sure. Okay. And I know that you have an online community. Any idea what percentage of that community comes from outside of the U.S.? Uh, the community mix and the, and the general website mix is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. They're right on top of each other. Okay. Um, now, Obviously, if people are traveling, they can log on and connect with other community members. Any idea how other community members are connecting if they're traveling abroad? Yeah. Do provide facilities for that? How does that work? Uh, well, I'll answer that question two ways. Uh, in terms of the community on our website, it, it's less about engaging real time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're, they're posting their photographs, they're looking for a travel buddy, you know, they're you're engaging in message boards or whatever they're doing. It's less about I'm overseas and I need some help right now. Mm -hmm. For the person that is overseas and looking for help right now, mm -hmm. we give call center support services so that while they're overseas and something's going wrong or they got to change their travel plans, they know who to contact and get those changes in place. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So in other words, there isn't a greater compelling need for travelers to connect while they're there, they usually connect before they leave. So this type of travel is very research intensive. So uh -huh. people are looking to make themselves as smart as they can about the destinations, the itinerary, the hotels, the visas, the vaccinations, so uh, health warnings, whatever it is that they need to know before they go, so that by the time they've already left, they've done a lot of the research up front. Makes sense. Now, you go to a lot of exotic places. How do you choose or qualify the trips that you offer? Uh, in terms of where we travel, it's largely demand-driven. So we have a good sense of where consumers want to travel based on the calls or emails coming into our store. In terms of the supplier we work with to actually run those programs, um, you know, we talk to the local tourism boards for every one of those countries. You know, the hundreds of, uh, of companies we might work with, they narrow it down to two or three that are in the right quality for us. Then we interview those tour operators. Uh, actually send our consumers or our, our staff on these trips to actually kick the tires and stay in the hotel and see what it's all about. So a lot of quality control. Mm -hmm. well, you mentioned the right quality for your members or users. How would you characterize the level of quality that you offer? In other words, are you a high-level premium provider or more of a, a price-conscious value-oriented Very, very, very much uh, careful I answer this. We're, we're targeting the luxury end of the market, but we're bringing them value prices for the products that they're buying. So, for example, in describing our demographics, you're talking about a 25 to 60-year-old that makes $120,000 a year, 95% of them are college graduates, 65% are post-college graduates, so it's your doctor, lawyer, MBA crowd. It's a very fluent audience. But buying a trip from my explorer, same high-end, five-star level quality, would be 25% lower price than if they went to another U.S. tour operator to buy the exact same major order adventure. Okay, well, we're getting to this later, but I'll jump into it now. 
How can you afford to do that? Yeah, excellent question. Uh, a couple reasons. I think the first and foremost is our cost structure as an internet-driven business is much lower than most offline tour operators. So, for example, we have no paper in our business. There's no catalog marketing or you're having to create the catalogs with a postage cost or those kind of expenses. And most uh, tour operators have uh, heavy travel agent distribution. So we don't distribute our products to travel agents, and we don't have to give away those you know, very healthy you know, 10 or 15% commissions to kind of get that travel agent business in. So when I take those two savings and pass it through to the consumer, it's about 25% savings to them. Wow, so that's kind of digital Internet savings the way it was originally envisioned. Exactly right. Okay, that's cool. Um, and I saw that you offer travel guides on your site as well. Where does the content for those come from? Uh, we will contract with an expert in publishing that produces world travel guides for our business. This, this year's business, we're working with Columbus Guides. Uh, they're a UK-based business that builds world travel guides all over the world. We have about 223 countries, uh, 50 U.S. states, 13 Canadian provinces, 100 world city guides for the content. Mm-hmm. And... Um, but we, we, we put it out for bid, and we talked to Lonely Planet or Insight Guys or uh, whoever else might be interested in licensing their content. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so in other words, though, it sounds like for the travel guide purposes, there really isn't any original content that you're providing. We do produce some um, uh, destination features. You know, for example, you might go to our homepage and see an Ireland feature, and we build two or three pages of content in partnership with the tourism board around that destination. Mm-hmm. Um, we might produce some top ten lists. We might produce, you know, interesting articles. But as a rule, we're not in the business of being in a publishing business. We're, we're a commerce business, and we rely on the, on the editors to do their job in providing a world travel guide. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Um, now, I was just looking around your site and saw on the site map that there are certain things that have been archived already. Okay. I'm wondering what was archived and why. Uh, relevant? No, it's not that it's no longer relevant. It's that uh, that's where our homepage features. If, if we build content that was iSource specific that doesn't have a place in the site anywhere else, we just archive it so people have access to old features in case they want to read them. So if I'm promoting Ireland this month and I'm promoting Mexico the month before or Kenya the month before that, if it comes off the homepage, it moves into the archive section. Okay, cool. Um, now, we talked about the fact that um, you have primarily an English-speaking audience, and they don't speak many other foreign languages. But I've lived and worked abroad, and I know that there are a lot of other people in Europe and a lot of the other developed countries throughout the world who are big adventure travelers. Absolutely. Have you thought about localizing and trying to address those? It's a spectacular idea, and uh, the issue we run into is um, in globalizing a business like ours, there are two things we need to change. One is the call center fulfillment issues, and the second is the tour content and the actual trips that we're providing. And I'll, I'll give you an example of each one. Um, the, the, the key to fulfillment on the Internet is speed in real time. But I have to have somebody based overseas in the market that we're trying to fulfill so that that call center is open uh, when the consumers looking for trips in that region are away from looking for trips. Right now, if someone in Italy wants to buy a trip from us, you know, there's only a couple hours a day where there's overlap between the two call centers. Um, the second so, so your call center is located here in Chicago? Right here. Yep. Mm-hmm. The, the second thing I have to deal with is um, uh, the trip content. Somebody in the United States may only be willing to spend a few hundred dollars to go to the Grand Canyon. Uh, they might be willing to spend four or $5,000 to go on an African safari. The flip side of that is, I'll let's use someone who lives in the UK, you know, going, going to India from London it could be a weekend trip for them as opposed to a 10-day big long-haul kind of trip. So we'd have to have different type of trips built that appeal to the local markets and the prices that they're willing to pay. Mm-hmm. I hear you. Okay. So budgets overseas tend to be less, and a long-haul trip for an American is usually a short-haul trip for someone in the local market. So I have to, did have different itineraries to meet those needs. Have you looked into what it would cost to offer and provide those things and the profit potential? I think the profit is definitely there. It's just we have limited focus. We're a small business with a small staff, so we're just walking before we run. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
I mean, are there partners who could help provide you with those kinds of things? Very, very much could be. Um, I mean, a lot of our tour supplies today are based in country for the trips that we're actually selling. So we could set a partnership with those guys and say, hey, listen, we're going to build a new website. It's going to be iexplore.co.uk. It's focusing on the UK market. I need a local European call center. Would you mind taking the lead and cut a partnership with them to do that? Cool. Okay. Um, now, I would think and hope that the local cultures are of interest to travelers. Do you provide anything that, that informs them, educates them, those kinds of things? about the destinations where they're going to be traveling? Um, before we sell a trip to a consumer, we want to make sure that, one, they're well prepared on what to expect from the trip itself, and, two, about the, the places they're going, the people, the cultures, the customs, the tipping, the, you know, the do's and don'ts before they actually go. So, you know, that's usually our sales staff who's been well trained on where to go and what to see and how to act and behave and pay and tip and all that kind of stuff. So, yes, we try to make sure they're prepared before they get there. Mm -hmm. Okay. But, I mean, it sounds like it's pretty much nuts and bolts. Um, you know, learn the things that you need to learn to get by. You know, don't provide you know, much historical context. Um, we use our we use our, our tour guide pages on our website to do that education for us. So so the way the way we built our businesses, um, it it's got three legs of the stool. It's the original portal model. You got the content to help educate the consumer on where they're going. You got the commerce opportunities with the trips and actually getting themselves there. And you got the community of travelers that are engaging with each other and sharing stories and getting the additional real hand knowledge that the tour book might miss. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sounds like it works. Yeah, it works. Works well. Okay. Um, I mean, you mentioned that where you go is demand driven. How do you, well, first, what are your members' favorite activities and destinations? And then one step further, how do you pull out the emerging destinations? In other words, places people haven't discovered yet. Excellent question. All right, so let's, let's talk about the current bestsellers. Um, iFlore is what I would say in the world wonders business. Uh, people are coming to us to travel to the man-made wonders like the Pyramids, Taj Mahal, Machu Picchu, uh, Great Wall of China, or they're coming to see natural, beautiful, scenic places. Uh, Alaska, Galapagos Islands, uh, an Antarctica cruise, um, wildlife in Africa experience. So that's, that's kind of what our best sellers are today. So if you follow the world wonders, either the man-made or the natural wonders, you hit it head on. Mm -hmm. Now, um, the, the term adventure travel has is, is taken on different meanings over the years than where it was 30 years ago and kind of where it is today. Um, as more and more mainstream travelers fastest growing category of, of the travel business is adventure travel. As more and more people are taking adventure travel, the real diehard adventure travelers from before are looking for that next place that hasn't been discovered yet. So typically, the, the people will come to us, they'll say, hey, listen, I didn't see this on your website, but could you get me to Mali? Or could you get me to Namibia? Or could you get me to Madagascar? Um, and when we get enough of those calls, then we build a trip behind it. So that's kind of how we get ahead of the curve. And, you know, places that, in our mind, that are, are undiscovered by mainstream Americans that are, you know, going to be favored five years from now or, or two or three years from now would be places like um, um, Syria in the Middle East, um, uh, Honduras in Central America. Um, uh, Libya is taking off now that Libya is playing friendly with the American government. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of places that haven't been discovered yet that have a lot, a lot of great things to go see that have yet to be mainstream. I'm curious, what kind of activities would people be looking to do in Syria? I'll use Syria as an example. Syria is a country that has been like the crossroads of every major one of the empires in the history of civilization. So the Romans and the Greeks and the Mamluks and the Ottomans, they're going to kind of run through that region. So you have a lot of... Um, um, uh, ruins, so think Roman ruined cities like Palmyra. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a lot of um, uh, religious history, so you know you're you're in part of the Holy Land, so you have all kinds of religious destinations to go to, um, including one of the first cathedrals ever built in the world, uh, Saint Simeon, built in the fifth century, mm -hmm. um, and you've got. Um, 
uh, fabulous people and culture and food and all kinds of other stuff to do while you're there. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I personally traveled to Syria. I went for the first time this year. Um, you know, the American mainstream media has been so negative, anti-Middle East and access of evil and all that kind of stuff that, you know, people were kind of saying, well, why are you going there? It's going to be dangerous and scary. I hope you come back. And the reality was, it was a very safe-friendly country. And uh, terrific sightseeing, terrific people, terrific food, a lot of culture, a lot of history. And the people, I got a great quote from one of the Syrians. He said, he goes, what Americans don't understand is 90% of the Syrians have relatives living in the United States. Right? So we live and aspire to the American way of life. And, um, and we just think that the current administration is kind of used the situation to kind of uh, further some of their objectives. So... But it was great. I would highly recommend it to anybody that wanted to go. It was really spectacular trip. Well, I don't know, but I mean, I gotta believe there are a lot of people who are skeptical of going to places like Bali. Yep. You know, granted, Syria probably isn't Bali, but I think people are a lot more wary and concerned than they were three to five years ago. People tend to, uh, I, I would say the American reaction to world events has changed over the years. After September 11th, um, Boy, Americans went into a shock. They just stopped traveling. The people that had booked travel canceled travel. Uh, you know, they didn't know what to do. They were kind of waiting to figure out and kind of see what happened. Well, the further we got away from September 11, and the more they seemed kind of terrorism was kind of part of the normal way of life, and whether it's a, uh, a train in Spain or, or, uh, or avian flu or, you know, SARS or war with Iraq or whatever it might be, they, they just become smarter in where they want to travel, and uh, they want they definitely want to keep vacationing, but where they choose to vacation varies over with world events. Okay. Um, now, you said where your customers' favorite destinations are and their activities. What are the most profitable for iExplore if you can divulge that? Well, um, I mean, for the most part, our product mix is largely the same. Whether they're buying, a, whether they're buying an African safari or a European river cruise or whatever it happens to be, the unit level economics are roughly the same. There are there certain destinations that can carry a higher profit than others. Uh, an example would be like in Egypt. Um, the, the, the cost of carrying product in Egypt is very, very low in relation to the price that Americans are willing to spend. So we might have a higher margin in Egypt. Uh, flip side is Europe. Uh, the, the value of the dollar up against the euro, you know, the dollar's not as strong as it was a couple years ago, so, you know, our costs are much higher than they used to be, so our margin's a lot less, but people aren't willing to spend as much as, as they would need to in uh, Apple Scrabble spaces. So, my overall comment is it's largely the same across the board. Certain markets are, high, are slightly higher market margin, and other markets are slightly lower market. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I guess I already asked about new and emerging adventure travel destinations. Um, it looks like you've been very successful in branding your own travel products. How do you evaluate the success of your branding? Uh, a couple things. I would say um, when this business originally launched, we were a travel agent of other people's products. Mm -hmm. right? So we had aggregated tours from Abercrombie and Kent and Back Rose, Mountain Travel, Sobek, Windblad Expeditions, dot, 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 right? So mm -hmm. uh, over time, we started uh, building our own line of tours uh, because after September 11th, uh, we wanted to focus on driving more margin. When, when passenger acquisition became more difficult, we started focusing on the margin line. So we could make double the margin as a tour operator than we could as a travel agent. Mm -hmm. So we started to replace the third-party tour uh, product on our website with our own branded tours and slowly between 2001 and 2005, our private label tours have grown from 0% of our mix to about 80% of our mix. And um, so one measure of success is have we been able to build a brand that people trust to kind of turn into a tour operator and take them on a vacation spending $4,000 a person? Absolutely. We've already we've, we've moved 80% of our sales out of third-party hands into our own. So that's one measure of success. The other measure of success is uh, are we seeing growth in our word of mouth, repeat sales? Are people having a good experience in the field and coming back and telling their friends? Absolutely. Our repeat sales has grown from 0% of our mix to 40% of our mix over the last two years. Um, are we seeing growing traffic to our website? Do we continue to win awards? Uh, do I get PR mentions when I didn't even go out to solicit it because someone had stumbled on our website or heard about it from a friend? All that kind of stuff is happening. So. 
like, I gotta believe that um, taking control of your own marketing, branding, and tours has enhanced your profitability as well. Uh, very much so. When you're when you're when you're traditional tour operator, thirty percent margin versus a fifteen percent commission as a travel agent. So you double the profitability per unit for the same amount of labor cost. So it's that evolution from travel agent to tour operator that helps to drive this business to profitability. Okay. And for the twenty percent of your business that isn't your own tour, how are your relationships with those folks if you're competing with them? Uh, we're not competing on a itinerary for itinerary basis. Yes, they might be a tour operator, but their expertise is mountaineering, and I have no mountaineering trips. Or their expertise is horseback riding, and I don't have any horseback riding trips. That's an example. So they're all complementary. They're complementary. They run off the product. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, you, you say that you're the leading online seller of adventure travel. I'm just wondering how do you define that? Because everybody claims to be the best at everything. Yeah, sure. I'm wondering what's your definition. Uh, in terms of the traffic that comes to our website, we have the largest amount of unique visitors coming to our website than any other, uh, call it tour operator business. Okay? Mm -hmm. So even big, huge, established businesses like Abercrombie and Kenneth have been in business for 30 or 40 years, mm -hmm. their websites are much smaller than iExplore.com. Now, Abercrombie and Kent is a much bigger business than I so They have much more sales. They've been around for a lot longer period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of online presence and online market share, I explore the largest. Yeah. Okay. Um, I thought that you won an international web page award. Okay. Do you have any idea how international the international web page awards are? I'm not exactly sure. I don't know what they do. You can probably check it out at their website. Yeah, I, mean, I went to their website and I saw, you know, companies in 17 countries have won awards. So I was just wondering if you had any other insights there. Don't have, I, I, that was a award we got a couple years ago and I don't remember what their specs were. So. Okay. Um, I saw that it looks like corporate adventure and experiential travel is important. Meeting planning, special events, team building, all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Which are the most important for you, and what kinds of benefits do those bring to businesses who, who bring those or hire those kinds? Uh, let me start by saying that the incentive travel business is a very sizable business that's been around for years. Okay, so. For your information, my dad worked in incentive travel years ago. Okay. And we had a lot of fun with it. We've seen a lot of places. A lot, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of demand from corporations for incentive travel type of programs. Mm -hmm. And of the $23 billion marketplace for incentives that you're trying to motivate your sales team or reward your employees or whatever you're trying to do, $8 billion of which is spent on travel. Now, historically, that travel has been uh, group-driven events where you're taking your top 100 vice presidents to some event. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's been largely domestic or mainstream kind of programs. Mm -hmm. uh, a golfing event in Phoenix or, you know, the, the Las Vegas event or whatever it might be. Well, what's happened over time is, is that a couple of trends have emerged. One, the recipient of that award isn't really motivated to go to Las Vegas for the 10th time and be away from their family for a week. They'd rather do something that's more interesting to them and doing something different you know, whether it's, a, whether it's a Machu Picchu trip or an African safari or whatever it might be, they want something that appeals to them, number one. Mm -hmm. The second thing is they want something that is on an individual level, not on a group level. Mm -hmm. So it's more meaningful for them to have a $5,000 gift certificate for my explorer to travel any one of 100 countries of the world whenever they want to go with their family as opposed to, you know, leaving with their coworkers on a set group departure to Las Vegas. So it's growing uh, adventure travel, unique itineraries, mm -hmm. something different that's, that's going to be a motivating driver, and they want it individual and focused, not group and focused. They want something to cater to them. Mm -hmm. Obviously, with incentive travel, you're motivating people to earn that incentive. Mm -hmm. Are there any other business benefits? that come out of these kinds of things. In other words, you talk about team building. Yep. Um, you know, those kinds of things. Um, is, is it just the carrot at the end, the, the incentive that you're offering, or are there any other business benefits to the corporate services that you provide? The corporations have multiple goals on how they might want to use travel. Okay, so I'm going to walk through this list and kind of give you an example of each one. So um, it could be a meeting, right? It could be as simple as they're doing their annual meeting, 
and, and to increase attendance at that meeting, they want to do it in a place that is new and different and will increase visitorship. Okay, so that's a simple thing. The second thing would be um, um, team building. Um, there's no specific sales goals associated with the reward. Uh, let's say uh, the, the, the company had a great year, they want to reward their employees, and we want to improve the morale amongst the, the senior management team around the table. We're going to do a team building event. We're all going to go on Alaska cruise together. Right? It's going to be completely social. We're going to have a great time. We're not going to talk about work, but we're going to build a team. Right? So that's, that, that's the second aspect to these events. The, the, the next category here is um, uh, consumer promotion. So think of the marketing department. And um, um, you're, you're, you're trying to grow your marketing list, and you're trying to find new consumers. Well, using travel as a sweepstakes giveaway to sign people up to your list is a way to acquire new customers. Um, uh, let's see. Those are examples of the way people use our travel. Okay. Um, I mean, I thought that there are other people in this space, adventuretravel.com, trackamerica.com. Um, on your website, you know, it's your trust, experience, and adventure that differentiates you. Those other folks, I think, have the trust of their customers and so What else differentiates you from other folks who work in adventure travel? All right. First, let's kind of let's, let's deal with the two that you've got here in terms of you know who these businesses are and who I think we're, we're really competing against. Mm-hmm. Um, AdventureTravel.com is actually a, a, a mainstream travel business agency that acquires the URL AdventureTravel.com to try to get more search engine traffic, and they don't really have expertise in adventure travel. They're kind of faking the adventure travel expertise, but they don't really have diehard experts that have been to Mali and Namibia and Mozambique and all these faraway places of the world. They're just trying to sell cruises and Disney World and Vegas and mainstream, which is what their business is. They're a division of a company called AdTrav, and uh, they're based in Alabama. Okay, so that's that's adventuretravel.com. So I I don't really think of them as a competitor. uh, Trent America is a tour operator. They, they specialize in, in hiking tours, so their expertise is actually hiking. So who is I for competing against? Um, uh, in the old days, I would have said uh, your traditional U.S. wholesaler tour operators, your Abercrombie and Kent, your Back Road, your Long Travel, so that. Today, I think there's a changing world that I think any Anybody that Google, anybody that a, cons- uh, uh, a consumer can land on when doing a random search in Google is who we're competing against. Mm-hmm. So whether they're and if you search for Egypt tour, Egypt trip, Egypt vacation, Egypt cruise, you're going to get a different list of ten companies on every one of those results, and you've never heard of any of them, right? Some of them might be U.S. wholesalers, some might be like international Cairo-based suppliers. Uh, it might, you know, you're comparing. You know, two-star level backpacking experiences right next against five-star Carlson experiences. So it's very, very confusing about the, the sea of different websites that people can land on. But that's the business that we're in right now. So when you're 100% online driven, you're getting a large percentage of your business from the search engines. You can't control uh, Google algorithms who they're landing on, but you've got to have a product that feels, and you've got to communicate your differences difference effectively. Now, what are our differences? How do we try to differentiate ourselves? First thing is. Um, most package tour operators are uh, uh, selling groups. They're selling 20 people leaving on January 10th, taking or leave it. We sell independent travel. Uh, you know, it could be one person traveling by themselves. It's more traditionally two people traveling, a husband or a wife or whatever it happens to be. Um, so we tell the consumer, here, listen, here's a suggested itinerary. It's 10 days in length. Uh, we think it's the greatest fit by itinerary. If you don't like it, we can change it. If you don't like the hotels, we can change them. You want to put an extension on the front end or the back end, no problem. You want to leave January 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, or 5th, doesn't matter. You want it eight days, you want it seven days, doesn't matter. We'll customize it exactly to your needs. So we're, we're in the more uh, high-end, customized end of the business. Uh, we're focusing on the luxury end of the marketplace, and, um, and we, we're one of the only businesses that have built the breadth of countries to find the whole world under one roof. A lot of the tour operators have expertise either in one activity, all they do is horseback riding, all they do is mountaineering, or all they do is Egypt. Mm-hmm. To, to, find the, to find a company that has, you know, over 100 countries in one website, there's only a handful of those guys out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, 
you can go to more countries. I mean, there's still more oh, countries. Oh, there's thousands out there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm kind of surprised you don't have any adventure destinations in Poland, it looks like, because I, there could be some places to go. I think we do have Poland. We should have one. Well, I, I tell you about a country guy, and, and you offer some resources, but I didn't see... Um, I don't remember. I don't have all that. There's no, 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 constantly no. changing the trip offering, but um, what we try to do is offer um, an itinerary for every country in the world that we think is sellable. Mm-hmm. Poland is clearly one of those places. I, I, I know I've seen the draft of my itinerary. I don't know if there's actually one yet, but I know, I know we should have a product for Poland. Uh, we, for example, the Rakopani and the, the Hatchery Mountains in the south of Poland. Right. Yeah, sure. The, the, the place where we won't have an itinerary is either a place that we don't think is safe, not safe to send tourists there, mm-hmm. a place that doesn't have infrastructure to the level that our consumers are willing and are used to traveling, so unless you have an American-style hotel that uh, can support the American demand for the high-end luxury market, we won't have an itinerary. Um, um, That's it. The stability of the country or the or the the, the comfort factor of the, of the accommodations, the infrastructure. That's the only reason we wouldn't have one. So, so for example, then, did you kind of head up that Bali might be dangerous, or have you taken Bali off your list because there's been two events there in the we, last year or two? Yeah, we, we, we move destinations in and out depending on what's going on in the world. So, for example, okay. uh, Zimbabwe was on the travel warning list for a period of time that came down, and when things got safe again, and it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean the U.S. State Department has to take their warning down. Mm-hmm. It's when the region that got impacted, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I can use Zimbabwe as an example, the, the warning went in place because of issues in Harare, the main central city, mm-hmm. which is hundreds of miles away from Victoria Falls. Okay? Mm-hmm. Nothing was going on at Victoria Falls, but we didn't know what was going on a warning has come up, you know, they might be targeting tourists, let's, let's just take it down for a while until we actually research it. Mm-hmm. Talk to the ground supplier, what's going on, is there anything going on in the field, the hotel's still open, what are the issues, are any of the levels getting anywhere near Victoria Falls, yes, no, yes, no. And when Do we... you have to travel through the capital to get to Victoria Falls? No, you don't. Okay. You know, so uh, you can, you, there's actually little uh, uh, propeller plane airports that are right next to the falls. You just take them right direct to the fall. Mm-hmm. So um, once we learn that, then we put the itinerary back on the on the website, took Harari out of the equation, and just focus on just Victoria Falls as part of a as part of the operating experience. That's an example. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, even when warnings are in place and a consumer wants to go somewhere, um, we do our best to give them the pluses and the minuses. If they still want to go, it's their call to do that. So let's use Nepal as an example. Nepal is not a great time to be going. There's Mollusk Rebels running around right now, uh, and they're targeting tourists in Tamil and the, in, the, in the restaurants and some of the hotels. They're scoring out the tourists before they put the bond in place and all that kind of stuff. You know, they're, they're, taking, uh, they're taking monetary bribes from the hikers that are trying to hike through the region. You, gotta, you never know what you're going to run into. So... It's not a great time to go to Nepal. However, you tell all that stuff to the consumer, I still want to see Mount Everest. All right, I'm 65 years old. I only got a certain amount of years left in my life, and I haven't been there. I'm going. Can you take me there or not? Sign the waiver. We've disclosed all the issues that you might run into, and yes, we can definitely get to Nepal. Got to give it the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Earlier you mentioned that Part of the reason you're able to offer your tours for less is because you don't have some of the travel agent costs. Mm. But it looks like you work with travel agents as well. How do you fit together with travel agents, or don't you really work together with travel agents? Um, I'll answer the travel agent question this way. We do not distribute our ice for a product through travel agencies today. Okay. So um, the only place you can find an iSport product is on iSport.com or one of our partner websites. Okay, so that's we do, we do not have travel agency distribution. Yes, travel agents are getting squeezed out of the industry, but as that market share is declining, I'm not losing any sales from that channel because I'm not there to start. And all those consumers that used to go to the travel agency are now going to the web. 
And as long as we're good at searching and optimization and getting exposure like on the internet, we're, we're inheriting that business as people are moving to the West. So uh, we're seeing we're seeing good growth on the left side of travel, getting more and more offline agencies are going on business. Okay. Um, how do you work together with airlines, tour operators? In other words, you build your own tour business, it sounds like. Um, are you partners? Do other people have an equity interest in you? And I'll get to a couple of those specifics later. Mm -hmm. Do you have equity interest in anybody else? You know, is it strictly commission-based kind of stuff? Are there How do you work together with people? The, the way our business model is structured today is um, we are primarily in the business of selling land, the land program, the 10-day package itinerary, okay? And in building that product, the uh, iSport office has researched the ground suppliers, has designed an itinerary, has cost of the trip, has put it up on the website, and is promoting that program as an iSport program. We partner with people in country, in Cairo, in Nairobi, in Bangkok, in Lima, wherever the tour happens to be running, that puts on the I-4 hat that day, wears the I-4 name tag, meets at the airport with the I-4 sign, you know, their I-4 today, their Abercrombie intent tomorrow, and their background on the third day, or whatever it happens to be. So, um, so we have partnered with in-country ground operators that run those programs on our behalf. So we're, we're more of an online marketing business than we are actual travel operations business. Um, uh, there's no equity interest going back and forth. It's just finding the best suppliers, and they give us the, uh, a rate, our net cost for the program. We put on an I-4 margin, and we put a retail price up on the website. So that's, that's how that business works. In terms of air, uh, about a third of the consumers that inquire about land uh, inquire about air, and of the third that inquire actually purchase from us. So a third of the third. So about 10% of our overall land buyers actually buy the air from us as well. Uh, we partnered with um, airline consolidators that have lower rates than the traditional published fares, and we're, you know, whether it's first class or business class or coach class, we, we know that suppliers have expertise with dealing with international destinations. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, that's how that works. Gotcha. Well, I mean, you mentioned that you have local guys, so on and so on. How do you find these folks? How do you qualify them? The, no question, but uh, we're, we're relying on our in-country partners, the businesses that are in the business of running tours, mm -hmm. um, to hire good quality staff, right? We do not need every single guy that you could possibly put on a particular tour. There's, there's, there's 2,000 Egyptologist guys that might end up running on uh, any particular Egypt program. What I know that is of the 2,000 Egyptologists that are licensed to be running tours in Egypt, that our in-country partner has found the best 20. Oh, okay. And, and that was going to be my following question, because if you use the same people as Abercrombie and Kent and so on, again, what differentiates you? Um, now you're back to price and flexibility, not in a group, you're in an independent tour. So if you buy an A&K tour, you're traveling with 20 people on January 10th, take it or leave it, and you're paying four grand. If you buy an iSquare tour, you set your own terms of travel, you customize the itinerary, you travel by yourself, and you're not paying four grand, you're paying three grand, lower price point for exactly the same experience on an independent basis. And if you ask A&K to make that an independent experience, they charge you 25% premium. So now you got a $5,000 trip versus our $3,000 trip for the same hotel, same guys, same service, same everything. And uh, so we're, we're differentiated on price for the same quality and the flexibility of those customized tours. Um, now, I believe on your website, I also saw that you, you work together with folders, bombers, travel offices, and so on. Sure. So how do those relationships work? Uh, we go to a partner, it could be a travel publisher, it could be a big travel agency like Expedia, it could be wherever we think is logical distribution for adventure tours. Mm -hmm. And we build a, a version of the iSport trip finder into the look and feel of those partners. So if you go to photos.com, you'll see an adventure travel section, and you'll actually see an iSport trip finder in your look and feel. Um, if you go to Travelocity, they've got an escorted vacation section in their vacation section. Uh, if you search for adventure tours, it's over to us in our look and feel, or in their look and feel. So we're kind of like the silent back-end behind a whole bunch of different partners, and we pay them a revenue share for any leads that they send us. So you're essentially only on your site to those folks. Exactly. Okay. Cool. I guess getting back to the, the traveler's experience, what responsibility do you have if one of your travelers gets into an emergency abroad? 
Well, I mean, we kind of talked about that. There's two contact points that we give the consumer for the units. One is they have access to iExplore and how to get in touch with us from everywhere they're going. Second, more importantly, they know the in-country contact in case anything goes wrong. So, you know, we give them the phone number and the name and the cell phone number for 24-hour support from someone that's actually in-country. So that's the second thing. And if they're really in a jam, they lost a passport or, you know, State Department kind of issues, they've got the local embassy numbers for everywhere that they're traveling. So we think they're covered. We don't usually run into any problems there. And you've never had to fly anybody out on a medevac, medical reasons? We haven't. That's not, that's not usually included in our services. Uh, most, most of our consumers buy travel insurance, and the travel insurance covers that. Uh -huh. okay. um, do you have any kind of offline presence? Well, our call center, by definition, is an offline kind of experience, right? We're not mm -hmm. we're not just putting up a bunch of web pages and saying buy one of these trips, click online, and give me your credit card number. It's a two or three week sales cycle with mm -hmm. with experts that have been there and done that to answer these very complicated questions and developing a personal relationship with the person on the other end of the phone. So the it, it's kind of funny, you know. Most most businesses are trying to figure out how to get people off the phone as quickly as possible. We're trying to figure out how to get people on the phone as quickly as possible because we learned is the minute we've gone from just being a website that's impersonal computer and become a, a, a voice and a real person that can answer your questions, you're establishing trust uh, with the consumer, and we see a three times higher close rate on our phone leads than we do on our emails. Gotcha. Um, and when you were essentially an internet play that started just before the bubble burst, correct? Mm-hmm. How did you survive the internet bubble burst? The internet bubble burst was was in March of 2000, mm -hmm. and uh, we launched our website in February of 2000. So we we, we very quickly <laughs> a month early. We very we very quickly learned that the original business model of trying to spend millions of dollars of venture capital to kind of build up a brand was not going to work, mm -hmm. and um, uh, we, we we quickly shifted gears away from spending you know multi million dollars in marketing dollars to well, we still want to build a trusted brand. Let's go piggyback on somebody else's coattails, and let's go partner with somebody like a National Geographic that people have heard that name before. They know that brand. It's been around for 112 years. Now, we're, you know, we're not just I explore the unknown or I explore an association with National Geographic. So that was a five-year relationship, and that did wonderful things, building confidence and driving conversion rates and getting sales up and helping to establish an iSport brand to be solid enough on its own two feet as we went from an infant unknown business to a tour operator five years later. So that, that, that was, that's primarily how we got through that. So we, we cut our expenses, we cut our, our marketing plans, and found a big strategic partner to piggyback on their coattails to get us to the finish line. Gotcha. Well, you had to be real nimble right off the bat. Right, right from day one. <laughs> right from the start. Um, how much has iSport grown? And you know, I realize revenue is proprietary, but where do you start with? Where are you now? Well, we do about a couple thousand passengers a year, and uh, which is up from zero when we started. So we've slowly been growing over time. Uh, you know, launching this business has been a real roller coaster because you mentioned the dot com bubble burst. That was probably the least of the issues we had to deal with. We had to deal with September 11th, oh, yeah. war, SARS, terrorism, the sour U.S. economy. Uh, we've got a lot of potholes. This is going to navigate through a lot of choppy things. So throughout the, throughout the course, we've been re-architecting the business and changing the models and uh, coming up with new ways to drive profitability and, and have a very successful, stable business. So I, I'd say our growth rate is in the neighborhood of 35 or 40% a year. And some years are higher than that, some years are lower than that, but that's about the average for the last few years. Mm -hmm. And... Um, um, and we've blocked and tackled and, you know, found, you, you heard our evolution from travel agent to tour operator. That was one evolution. The second evolution was we got into the advertising sales business. So not only do we have a travel revenue stream, we sell advertising to people that want to get up on our website. So if you see all the banner ads on our site, people are paying us to get exposure in front of our high-end demographics. So that has been a very lucrative stream that, you know, even if the travel business is going up and down, the advertising business and the growing website traffic more than makes up for it. Mm -hmm. So diversification, basically. Diversification, the revenue stream. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Now, I saw that you got money from George Soros. Yep. And I know he can be a politically oriented guy. Okay. Um, has that affected how you run your business? No, not at all, because Soros investment took place back in uh, early 2000. Uh, and in January of 2002, we went to a major reorganization of the business. So the Soros stake is very, very small today, and they, they don't have a board seat, and they're not active investors. So no, that's the answer to the question. Okay. And you've already mentioned National Geographic. Um, how is it that you chose National Geographic or National Geographic chose you? Because it sounds like that was a vitally important decision for you. Very, very much so. I mean, we researched a handful of brands that we thought could fit into this space, uh, you know, adventuring spirits, a travel category. National Geographic by far was, uh, you know, the trust and stamp of approval for, you know, they've, they've, been, they've been educating consumers on geography and different parts of the world and cultures and peoples and places, which is exactly the trick that we were trying to sell to our consumers. So, there was a very logical overlap between those two brands. And um, um, so that's how we selected them. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of what it's done for the business, you know, as I said, getting that brand association for the first five years of our of our startup period made a big difference in getting our name out there and establishing trust and credibility of a standalone I explore. Mm-hmm. And um, next steps come out of summarize that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you mentioned that you've done very well selling advertising as well. Can you divulge what percentage of your revenue? Coming from advertising? About 50% of our revenues are coming from advertising. Oh. And what, they must have started zero five yeah. years ago. Has that accelerated recently, or was that always the case? Uh, no, we got, we got into the advertising sales business seriously about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And um, and we saw a very huge increase in 2004 from previous years. And 2005, we said, God, there's a real interesting business here. We need to put more formal focus behind it. We hired a full-time advertising salesperson. He got started in May of 2005. And now he's got the mandate to go out there and further accelerate that business. So not only are we selling and trying to sell at i4.com, which usually means uh, keeping traffic to the site growing, putting a reasonable number of creatives on the page and making sure you're, you're selling out your site at, at reasonable rates. But we've got a network of other websites with similar demographics that have come to us and said, hey, listen, you've already got the advertiser relationships in place. Can you sell advertising for us? And uh, and we'll give you a revenue share on any leads that you're bringing to us. So that's something new that we're experimenting with this year. And uh, But the good, the good part of that is you know, we sell it like four, two or three months ahead of time. So getting that extra inventory gives us more ability to leverage our fixing investment in the advertising field first. Um, how it compares with other sites, I don't know if that is important. Um, it looks like you charge 50 cents for cost per click. And just my experience says that's kind of expensive. Can you give me a little feedback there? How do you justify yeah, that? Yeah, sure. Uh, first, we have two types of advertisers. We have graphic-based advertisers that are traditional uh, brand-building advertisers. That they want a graphical banner ad or a leaderboard or a skyscraper. Um, those are those are impression-based ads. Mm-hmm. And we set our rates at, at market competitive rates. So we study all the online travel guys, and we'll, we'll see where they're setting their rate cards. And we're on the phones with advertisers all the time, so we know what acceptable contract rates are and we set our rate cards there. The cost per quick business is for the ROI-driven side, the guy that doesn't have a big budget, that is trying to get as many cost-effective leads as they can, and they think more on a paper performance click-based instead of an impression-based model. So... Fifty cents for the high-end travel business is actually very low level. Um, the, when, you, when you're selling four thousand dollar tours, fifty cents is not a lot to get enough clips to drive a profitable sale. It's my experience is with other products yeah. where it starts at a nickel a dime. Yeah, sure. When you're selling when you're selling a, a, a nineteen dollar paperback book, that's different than selling a four thousand dollar adventure tour. Yeah, okay. Well, a function of the price. For the product, the product has high enough margins to support a much higher cost per click. Um, we already talked about guaranteed lowest prices. Yep. You're taking people to a lot of exotic places, but in some cases use kind of fun currency. Mm-hmm. 
you know, all of your vendors bill you in local currency or U.S. dollars, and when they don't bill you in U.S. dollars, how do you manage those foreign currencies? I would say 99% of the time we're getting billed in U.S. dollars, so I don't really have any exposure. And we set U.S. dollar terms uh, up front at the beginning of the year, and uh, the, they honor the rate for the year, so as fluctuations in currency move up and down, they probably built in a cushion on their end to account for that. Mm-hmm. And if the currency moves significantly, they come back to us and say, hey, listen, we're getting clobbered, we need to reset our prices. We reset the price and we change the price on the website. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, then alternatively, your customers are going to these exotic countries with funny foreign currency. How do you counsel them on dealing with currency fluctuations and changing money and in places where currencies aren't always that convertible or easily convertible? Um, a couple of answers to that question. Believe it or not, the U.S. dollar carries a bunch of weight as a foreign currency in a lot of the countries that these people travel. Mm-hmm. So, and, and frankly, they're, they're, you know, the, 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 the merchants or whoever you're spending your money with would actually prefer the U.S. dollars for whatever reason. So sometimes you don't even need any foreign currency to use your U.S. dollars. When you do need the foreign currency... Well, in those cases, sometimes, if you're looking at global exchange rates, you could be paying a premium there. Yeah, You've got to know what the market bank exchange rates are before you go. We provide that to the consumer before they have a rough idea of what the value exchange is. So uh, if, if uh, a local currency is required to be engaged, we tell them always work with a reputable bank, the American Express office, uh, the, even the hotel, the hotel will charge you a little bit higher premium rate than you would in the bank, but you're working with a credible service that will give you a receipt and it's trusted and you know you're not going to be robbed or dealing with black market issues with some random Joe on the street that's just trying to get your money. So um, we give them that offer before they go. I mean, it's funny because, you know, in some countries, the hotel just got a rate from banks and, you know, that information can actually be very helpful. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I guess it also goes to say that you're probably taking people to countries where you can't get local currency out of ATMs. Because I know that's been a trend in the last couple of years. You know, you can take your U.S.-based bank cards, put it in Sweden, U.K., Germany, whatever, and get local currency out. Mm-hmm. A lot of the places you go, is that or is that not a possibility? I don't really know the answer to that question. I know wherever I've gone, the, the local ATMs are only giving out local currency. No, I know that they're only giving out local currency, but you can use your U.S.-based card to get out local currency, and usually the point it's at a lot better rate. Um, you know, there's our ATMs. You can use them in a lot of the countries where you guys go. Believe it or not, yes. Okay. I mean, they, they, even even a place like Syria, in a major city of Damascus with a million people, there's ATMs all over the place. So. Did he accept U.S.-based cards? Yes. Okay. Cool. <coughs> I also saw that you try and do good. You know, that donate 25 bucks of each booking to causes, those kinds of things. What causes do you contribute to, and you have any idea of the total amount that you've contributed over the last few years? Uh, I don't have that dollar amount off the top of my head, but I can tell you $25 from every single booking is contributed to our pool. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we apply it. We apply it to the regions where we're selling most of our trips. Mm-hmm. So we look at our best-selling destinations. We say, okay, in these destinations, what are the top causes we can be contributing to to help uh, better the environment, better the people, better the education, better whatever it happens to be in that marketplace. So uh, sometimes we'll talk to our, our local ground suppliers and say, hey, listen, you know, can you give us some recommendations of people that are trying to raise funds or you know trail reconstruction projects or science research exploration um, um, uh, research foundations. Um, um, it could be local schools. It could be um, whatever it is. What can you give us some ideas of stuff that's going on in the marketplace? And, you know, so in the Galapagos Islands, it'd be a contribution to the Charles Darwin Institute who's doing all the research in the national parks and helping to preserve the wildlife as an example of one. Okay. Hey, George, I know you've got an appointment too, so do you have to check a little bit? Yeah, we've got a few more minutes, so. Okay. Um, now, has being based in Chicago helped you or hurt you in building an internationally oriented internet business? Um, I don't think it's helped or hurt. I, think, I don't think it really matters. I mean, we're an internet-driven business. You can be an internet-driven business from any city. Mm-hmm. Um, Chicago has 
originally had hurt the business when we were trying to raise venture capital. It became very difficult to find early stage investors that um, you know had the you know the, the technology or the dot com attitudes or whatever at the time we were interested in them running. I like to think Chicago more of a stable, more conservative, second-round kind of city than a first-round kind of city. So there, there's, there's definitely venture capital issues in being in Chicago because they like to invest in their local home cities. Um, from a from a day-to-day business perspective, if I'm if I'm if I'm trying to cut a deal with somebody for distribution or finding a partner or whatever it is, for the most part, our partners tend to be on the coast. They're either in San Francisco or they're in, uh, in New York, New York being the biggest. So, you know, there's not a lot of people I can drum up business with from the people I'm trying to work with. In Chicago, they tend to be more media businesses or located in other areas. So, um, but that ain't hurt us. I mean, being in Chicago is fine. just means an extra plane ticket or, uh, or an extra phone call or whatever it is to get a deal done. Well, in a sense, you know, we're in the center of the country. O'Hare is huge. In some ways, it's very centrally located. You know, maybe from a travel perspective, that's an advantage. I would say the reason I, I located this business in Chicago, because I, re- I moved in from New York, I was in New York for eight years, mm-hmm. is the cost of living is so much lower. So, mm-hmm. you know, I can find equally smart, talented people uh, with a 30 or 40% lower cost structure. So I'm, I'm an entrepreneur getting a business up and running, and I'm using my own personal savings account to fund the startup cost of this business, I could stretch it 30 or 40% further in Chicago than I could in New York. So that's clearly an advantage of being in Chicago. You've got a great work base, uh, employee base, and uh, smart, educated, motivated people in, in a lower cost of living. Well, so in other words, you moved here without having lived and worked here before? Right. Because of that reason? Yes. Very cool. Yeah. So we would love to hear that. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, you got your BBA admission in 1991. Yep. How did you study international business? Whatever the normal course load was in your in your BBA program, it was just it was just a couple of courses. It wasn't that much. I mean, most of my international business has been on the job working here or in my predecessor company. I was at uh, Credit Suisse First Boston doing investment banking. So we had a lot of global businesses that you know were expanding internationally and dealing with foreign currencies and dealing with you know do I do I expand into Mexico first or expand into Europe or you know, I've got a, I've got a plant in, in Germany that's got to be sold and selling a German-based plant versus a U.S.-based business. So, you know, I've got a lot of international experience on the job between first Boston and here. Okay. And I saw on your website that you list some of the world's great explorers. On a personal basis, I'm just wondering, do you have a favorite personal explorer? I have a, I have a couple that stand out in my mind. I mean, the first one I want to talk about is Ernest Shackleton, right? The survival story of the... You know, getting all all twenty eight of his men, you know, to survive a year and a half trapped in Antarctica through very disastrous conditions and cold weather and ice and you know eight hundred miles snowboat uh, southern seas crossings and all the turmoil that were, that, that that expedition went through is amazing. That, 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 that's a great that's a great I mean, that's an excellent book. I had a chance to read it called uh, um, um, Endurance by Alfred Lansing, which is a good summary of the experience. Um, definitely worth checking out. The, uh, so he's my favorite in terms of uh, survival. It's the best survival story and from, from an exploration perspective for me um, because not only did he survive, he was a great leader. He got his men to believe in him. Uh, he, he got all 28 of his men to survival. It was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a case study in leadership. Okay? Uh, my favorite explorer, the guy that, you know, went out there and just had a, a wanderlust for learning new things, people, and places, is um, actually Henry Stanley. Uh, he, um, yeah, he, uh, you know, Stanley and Livingstone, you know, Dr. Stanley, I presume from the African exploration years in the, you know, late 1800s, but uh, Stanley was actually uh, based in America. Yeah, he was a reporter following the American Indians and the and the cavalry kind of wars and kind of played the American West for a while. He got the travel bug. He got reassigned to uh, the Middle East and uh, Asia, kind of traveled all through there. Uh, and then he ended up, uh, when, when Livingstone was lost and they didn't know where he was, he got a kind of private assignment to go in and try to find Livingstone in the middle of, you know, uh, 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 tribal Africa. 
right, in that late 1800s kind of time frame and kind of going in and trying to find a needle in a haystack. So the fact he was able to find him and navigate the Congo River a couple times, and he's just a, he had a fascinating history across a bunch of different places in an interesting time of travel. Um, the third one I would give you, because I can't mention this one, is three in my mind. Um, the best planner. So, so if Shackleton was the leader and, and Stanley was the explorer, the best planner, the guy that just was nuts and bolts, you know, who do I want to plan my expedition? It's Amundsen, uh, Roald Amundsen, who, uh, who uh, was the first one to the South Pole. And the fact that he had a a four-week uh, uh, late start behind Scott and the UK team that was able to surpass him and get to the pole three weeks ahead of time and he caught up that seven-week difference. Uh, it's just amazing. And it all came down to logistics and planning. And it came down to understanding, you know, uh, ice travel and the power of dog teams versus sledges and, you know, how much food and where you got to put the food depots and the frequency of the depots and human manpower versus labor of the dogs and I was just it was unbelievable execution to pull off what he did. And nobody nobody was injured or killed and the whole team came back with a huge success story and uh, and the UK team was got everybody died. So it was it was a very, very fascinating read on the differences between those two expedition teams. Well it also sounds like there's very much in Antarctic household based commonality between the public. Have you been to Antarctica? I have. It's one of our top 10 bestsellers. I have not. But it's on my list of places to go. The problem is the only way to do Antarctica, uh, there's two ways to do it. You either do a one-day fly-in, touch down on a continent and leave. You're there for three hours. It's not really what I want to do. And well, my dad's going to Buenos Aires, and he spends time there every day, and it's more than three hours. And we just this past... February, I think. Well, the, the, the two-way traditional tour operator to sell Antarctica is the one I just described, which is the, the guy that doesn't have two weeks, that just wants to check off the seven, check off the seven continent and just kind of get, the, get Antarctica on the list. Um, or you have to take a cruise, and you're taking a cruise over the southern sea with a minimum of 10 days, and you'll, spend, you'll, you'll stop, you use a cruise ship as your hotel, and you stop along the way for several days along the Antarctica coast, seeing the wildlife, the, the penguins, and all that kind of stuff, the glaciers. So, um, because it's such a time intensive kind of trip, I'm kind of, kind of waiting, even between jobs or whatever might happen. And he's like, he's like, I'm just like, I'm not taking the cruise. And he's got time to take that. Yeah, you need a lot of time to do it, right? And frankly, it's such a long flight, and I'm going to want to going at the same time. So now you're looking at four weeks. So having four weeks off in a row to kind of pull off a trip like this is not the easiest thing in the world. That's one of the questions. Speaking foreign languages? I took Spanish when I was in high school, and when I'm in a Spanish-speaking country, I can kind of fake it. But uh, but I'm not fluent in any other language besides English. Well, to learn too much at all, and especially taking people to a lot of these exotic places? Not really. I mean, you'd be surprised. I mean, everywhere that I've traveled, I've been to about 40 different countries. Uh, even even the locals, they've all learned, learned English as a second language. So you can, you can converse with everybody. I, I, I can't think of one example. I've actually traveled somewhere where I couldn't get around speaking English. Um, so even the exotic destinations where you take people to? Sure. English? Very much so. Oh, okay. That's cool. I guess two last general questions, and forgive me, they're not on the list. Mm-hmm. I mean, are there any specific international problems that you've run into in the last couple of years? And then on the flip side, are there any particular international opportunities? Sure. Let's talk about the problems first. I'd say uh, there's two problems. Mm-hmm. One, foreign currencies moving around has wreaked havoc when you're selling international tours. Mm-hmm. And uh, not from an I for business model perspective, because we're all fixed in dollars. But in terms of the retail price that consumers are having to pay, uh, as uh, as the South African rand keeps moving up, 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 and the dollar flies in comparison, what used to be a three thousand dollar trip all of a sudden becomes a six thousand dollar trip. So, you know, th- that's pretty major movements in terms of driving demand, right? So you got you got X amount of demand can support a three thousand dollar purchase, but half X can su- support a six thousand dollar purchase. So those are those kind of issues. The the bigger issue is world events. So, you know, whether it's terrorism or 
SARS or avian flu or whatever, I mean, that wreaks havoc with what people want to do with their vacations and travel. So when you're in the international travel selling business and something goes up on the international scene, either one of two things happens. They either uh, transfer their travel demand domestic to more U.S.-based products, or they go to safer destinations that they perceive are not in the way of, of, of harm or terrorism or whatever the issue is. So when SARS is going on in Asia, demand for China goes down. When you're at war with Iraq, demand for the Middle East goes down. That happens all the time. In terms of opportunity? Uh, international travel opportunity, I, I think in our space in particular, we're in the travel business, so we're benefiting from trend number one, which is um, uh, most of the offline market share and demand travel agents otherwise are moving online to the Internet. So that's going to continue to accelerate in the United States. Um, and, and the United For example, what percentage of travel is booked online versus offline? Today, today about $60 billion of a $250 billion marketplace is booked online. Okay? That's up from zero in 1995. Um, Three point two percent today. Yes. Yeah. It forecasts to get to 125 billion by 2010. So now you're up to 50 percent market share mm -hmm. in a period of 10 years. Mm -hmm. 10 or 15, uh, 15, over a period of 15 years, it was gone from zero to 50 percent market share. Is huge movement in a, in a two or 250 billion dollar marketplace. Uh, that same trend is going to happen overseas. So being the first mover to take advantage of the shift to the web in, in Europe and Asia and South Pacific, the same things are going to happen overseas in the United States. Okay, great. Anything else that's important to know about high floor? I think we tackled most of it. Good. Thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Um,